Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universe of mind controlling everything. A God willing the behavior of every subatomic particle. Now, every particle has an antiparticle. Its mirror image, its negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. Why weren't we told the truth? (laughs) Without the technology to confirm, it would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours. We had a responsibility to warn the rest of the world. Only the corrupt are listened to now, and they tell us what we want to hear. We believe it to be divine light. Welcome to the first installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. And for the month of January, we're honoring none other than the legendary rebel of horror himself, John Carpenter. And today I'm joined by managing editor of KillerHorrorCritic.com, the host of Killer Horror Critic Podcast, and wannabe werewolf Matt Kanopka to chat about Prince of Darkness. Matt, welcome to the show. Hello, and yes, I am a wannabe werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to talk about John Carpenter today. Oh, it's, it's great to be here to talk about one of the masters of horror. <laughs> the only place to start is to ask you about your Carpenter origin story. What was the first film you watched of his? Yeah, so uh, funny enough, my first Carpenter film was actually my first horror film and my first film. So, <laughs> oh man, a first of firsts, a first of firsts. Uh, yeah. So no, my, my first Carpenter film was actually Christine, uh, which for those that are less familiar, I guess, is the one about the, the killer car that takes vengeance on, uh, Arnie's, but bullies. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, it, the first was Christine for me. I saw it when I was like three years old, I believe. Uh, we had a VHS tape that I pretty much wore the shit out of because I'd watch it every day. <laughs> and uh, and my parents, you know, my parents are pretty laid back about that kind of stuff. They didn't care too much. I mean, there were certain horror films. Obviously, I wasn't able to watch at three, but for whatever reason, they just, I don't even think they screened Christine necessarily. I think they just thought, oh, it's its a car. No big deal, you know? What, what could possibly be bad about this movie? And uh, so yes, they didn't care about me watching it until one moment when my grandma was over and there's that scene where uh, Christine is following the car of the bullies and one of them turns around and like flicks off Christine and is like, Axel. And that scene came around and I turned right around to my grandmother and did the same thing, you know, just flick her off her <laughs> asshole. And after that, I wasn't allowed to watch Christine for a little bit, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the film that both got me into Carpenter and the horror genre. I just instantly fell in love with it as a little kid then. 
Yeah, that's a really remarkable film too, because it is a great display of just Carpenter able to get across like his style, not only tonally, but also just like his synth score, right? And how he's always very music heavy with his films. And it's such a funny, it's like such a ridiculous concept for a movie. And yet the way that he makes it, it has such a great sense of style to it that it really comes across as being far more menacing than it really should be. It's a movie about a killer car. And at the end of the day, you're going to get those people that essentially they're like, oh, you could just like run down that alley or you could just sidestep it or something like that. But then when you're watching the film, it is a lot more menacing than you would probably anticipate. Part of the brilliance of Christine is just how they, is just how Carpenter gets us involved with the characters, you know, because uh, a killer car was not a new idea at that point. Right. You know, I mean, because we'd already had films like The Car from the 70s, and uh, it was an idea that had already existed. And all those films are very campy and funny, you know, and and uh, not very scary. But Christine was a little bit different, you know, because uh, Stephen King had already laid out a pretty psychologically in-depth study of this character, Arnie. And I think what Carpenter did really well is that they kind of uh, just cut the whole possessed ghost aspect out of it like i don't know if you've ever read uh the original christine novel but it goes very deep into the ghost that possesses the car you know so you have a lot of scenes with arnie conversing with this ghost and you get the idea that it's possessing him and in the film it's it it more feels like a an obsession of arnie's you know it feels less like there is any kind of spiritual presence taking him over and it feels more like he's just becoming so obsessed with this car because the rest of the world has sort of shut him out you know (laughs) so so this car becomes his life so i think because of that you know you just really get into uh kind of the disturbed psychology of that character and it makes it a lot more frightening you know because you put yourself in his friend's shoes and like we've all kind of had that friend that has that you know maybe sort of addiction that you want to help him with and you can feel kind of helpless at times because you're not able to pull them out of that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so so this whole film kind of feels like that to me. And then it has these extra layers too of these kids in high school, you know, and they they don't really seem like they'd be good friends if they hadn't met earlier in life. Like one of them's a huge jock, the other one's kind of, you know, not very popular and made fun of by everybody. And you get the sense that this is maybe kind of their last hurrah, like they won't be friends after high school. And so it just, you know, it has a lot of these layers of just like the the end of an era and uh, French, the end of friendships. And so, you know, it's 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 a it's an emotional film, I actually think, you know, it's. <laughs> yeah, abso- no, absolutely. Yeah. Like a lot of people look at Christine and you do just on the surface think, oh, yeah, it's that silly killer car movie. But it's actually got a lot going on underneath the surface of it. <laughs> Yeah, he humanizes the film in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I don't think most people are expecting. And it really is that character-driven aspect that makes it that much more of a kind of an emotionally engaging film than, again, like you would expect going into it. Um, but in terms of like John Carpenter films in general, what do his films kind of mean to you as a fan of his work? Uh, well, I guess, you know, what they mean to me is... Uh, Carpenter has just always been one of my my biggest inspirations as both a horror fan and a film lover and someone who wanted to be involved in film. Um, you know, I mean, just just stepping aside from the fact that Christine was my first film and first horror film, um, you know, J- Carpenter has just always kind of been a part of my life in a sense because, 
you know, after that, I became more and more involved in the horror genre. And then Michael Myers was my first iconic slasher villain. You know, he would Halloween. I saw before Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw and all of those. Uh, and then, you know, Carpenter sort of became uh, he became Halloween for me, basically. You know, my, my favorite holiday and month of the year was Carpenter. And we would go to Six Flags in Illinois. And I don't know if you've ever been to Fright Fest, but all day long, they're just playing the Halloween theme. <laughs> and like, it, it does not stop. And so, you know, we'd go there every October and I just hear the Halloween theme the entire time. And I don't know, his film's just always been there. Like, you know, I have these odd memories that I can pull from life that revolve around Carpenter. So like when I first got braces, uh, if anyone's ever had braces listening, your first night sucks. Uh, yep. <laughs> have you had braces? <laughs> yeah, I have. It's the worst. Yeah. So that, that first night's terrible because you get all those rubber bands in your teeth and you know, it's starting to adjust everything. So you wake up in the middle of the night and everything's just super sore. Right. And so my first night having them, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night at like two or three in the morning. I was a young kid. And, you know, as a young kid, you think any little bit of pain is like you're dying. So, <laughs> uh, so I was just like, what the hell is going on? And anyway, I couldn't sleep. So I turned on the TV and, you know, that ended up being the first time I watched The Fog. The Fog was just beginning and I ended up watching it the whole way through until like five in the morning. Um, and, you know, so I just have little memories like that all throughout. And then as far as what his work has kind of meant to me, um, I've always just felt very inspired by Carpenter's direction, you know, so I, I started writing, uh, screenplays around the time of 12 or 13. And one thing that always stuck with me whenever I'd be writing is I found myself kind of sort of following Carpenter's style of how he portrays uh, villains in a sense, because, you know, you look back at, say, Assault on Precinct 13, and it's a relatively simple film, you know, just about, uh, I don't remember if they're gang members or, we'll, we'll just call them uh, villainous people. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. all these people that want to break into this police station to get a prisoner there. And it, it could have been done like your typical action standoff film, you know, and, and just been very action heavy and not have much mystery to it or anything like that. And instead Carpenter presents it like this horror film almost because the, the people surrounding the precinct and breaking into it, you never actually see their faces. They're all just these dark right. silhouettes, you mm -hmm. know? And so they feel almost kind of supernatural themselves. And so I've often found that coming up in my writing where if I have an opportunity for a moment like that, I choose that route instead of kind of going the more uh, revealing route, I guess, you know, mm. uh, it's, it's always more interesting to me to not put a face to things and, right. and to have more of that mystery. So I think in that sense, Carpenter's really worked his way into my writing because I'd always much rather go with something like that than, than the more obvious route. So I don't know if I answered your question at all, but... No, you did. No, that was fantastic. And I think that that is the most telling thing about Carpenter's work in that he's able to take these concepts that they can be summed up in basically like a sentence, right? They're very simplistic premises, and yet the way that he executes on them is so memorable. And it's kind of like you said, whether it's 
Halloween or it's Assault on Precinct 13, I mean, everything kind of has a horror tinge to it or it's obviously straight up horror. And that Silhouettes example is fantastic because it really speaks to the heart of like a horror movie, right? You never want to reveal the monster, the killer or whatnot until probably the third act all the way. And yet this is a, a siege movie, an action, not a traditional action movie, but it is very much like a siege film. And to have that quality of it, like I just, I literally rewatched the film the other night, Assault on Precinct 13. And it's one of those movies that it was unbelievable to me that I had only just revisited it for the first time because it is so indicative of a lot of his later works in a way that you have to be familiar with his work to kind of pick up on a lot of the little things that he would incorporate in his later films from Assault on Precinct 13. Mm -hmm. But it is very telling in a way that, um, you know, it's one of those movies that it kind of you can almost see the next 10 years of his career laid out and the different avenues and stylistic choices that he has in all of his films to some extent or another. Oh, for sure. I mean, even just looking at The Fog, you know, the, the two actually feel very similar. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because, because you are you are having characters being assaulted by basically an unseen force, you know, and, and they're such, like conceptually, they're such different movies, um, but you really, but that's that's the thing with Carpenter, you know, that I think uh, that I think is part of the reason why his work has really stood the test of time and why he eventually became, you know, revered as this master of horror. Because, and I hate to say this, uh, but you know, you look at other directors who I love, like like Wes Craven, for example, and Wes Craven's made a lot of amazing films. None of us would disagree with that. <laughs> but but a thing with Craven is Craven. I don't know that anybody who had only seen one Wes Craven film could then watch another Wes Craven film and say, oh, that's Wes Craven. You know, right. he, there, there's a, he tends to be kind of more of a chameleon with his movies where, uh, you know, where they all feel stylistically a little bit different. Uh, whereas Carpenter, all of his films, they have that kind of Carpenter vibe, right? Uh, yep. they, they all have those sort of stylistic choices that that make his work stand out as his own and and you know as simple as it is that that silhouette in the shadows thing is kind of kind of very carpenter-esque like he kind of made that his own so yeah and that carpenter-esque um, aesthetic and kind of touch that he has on everything it feels very natural no matter what it is whether it's assault on precinct 13 or it's halloween right mm -hmm. a lot of the different stylistic things that he employs in his films they never feel intrusive that whereas they might feel with a couple of Wes Craven movies, right? Where if you watch one of those movies, it very much feels like he's going for what he did in a previous film. Whereas Carpenter is really able to translate his overall style in a way that makes sense for the story he's telling. And yet it still has the markings and the trappings of this is Carpenter style. Exactly. But uh, in transitioning to the film that you picked for us to talk about today, um, which is None other than the second entry in Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, uh, Prince of Darkness. One of his most underrated films ever. <laughs> Absolutely. And I really want to get into that because initially, this, when I first saw this film like five or six years ago, it didn't click with me the way that it did on my rewatch recently this week. But uh, for those who are unfamiliar, the film begins with a priest played by frequent Carpenter collaborator Donald Pleasance, who uncovers a cylinder filled with a mysterious green liquid within a deserted church. Priest then contacts Professor Barak, played by another recurring Carpenter favorite, Victor Wong, who recruits a team of students to help him uncover the mystery of the cylinder. Though they inevitably discover that if the cylinder is opened, 
It could bring about the end of the world via the anti-God entity, essentially the Prince of Darkness. And so I was interested to learn that this idea for the film actually came from a dream that Deborah Hill had, apparently, that she was yeah. describing to Carpenter, yeah, um, which, again, even though she was not the producer on this film like she was with so many of his other movies that are um, iconic films, such as Halloween, obviously, and Escape from New York, I mean, again, it kind of just shows the strength of that collaboration between the two of them. You know, it's... I, I think I just posted about this the other day. I, it was... Um, it was the late Deborah Hill's birthday recently, and I, I've been I've been really glad to see more recognition for her lately. Because mm-hmm. um, because for a very long time, I think, well, you know, especially with Carpenter coming up in the '80s, and regretfully, you know, the both the film world and the general public not giving more credit to women in the industry at the time. Uh, she really went unnoticed for a long time, yeah. And 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 it's been really nice to see us kind of looking back and saying, no, Deborah Hill deserves just as much credit as Carpenter uh, through those first few years because she was a huge part of Halloween, Halloween Two, The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween Three. You know, like she she had an influence on all those films, and and yeah. So it is funny, you know, Prince of Darkness, even though she didn't co-writer or uh i don't think she produced it i'm not sure but um but yeah it was based on a dream of hers and so she still has kind of a big involvement with the film because it's all about her in a sense so um but yeah but, but it's what's interesting about prince of darkness because you know the film itself is so convoluted and strange and kind of dreamlike that you know as far as i understand carpenter's whole point was to kind of capture that sort of nightmarish kind of confusing feeling that we have from dreams and you know he wanted basically he wanted to capture that fear that deborah hill had waking up from the dream right and i i think i think in some ways he accomplished that yeah absolutely and i think that it's even more fitting that this film is poised as like his return to horror right after right. um big trouble little china which was considered like a box office failure um, he kind of was, this was his first independent film, I believe, since that and kind of wanting to stray away from uh, big studio films. And I think it's very telling that he's taking a step back from what he had been doing. He's coming back to horror and he's able to really capture the essence of horror in a way that I think is why this film is so underrated and because it's not the traditional types of horror. And uh, I want to get into comparing it to the other two chapters in the Apocalypse uh, trilogy of his which uh, this is sandwiched in between The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness. But before we kind of get too much into that, I'm curious, what about Prince of Darkness makes it stand out to you amongst his other films? The the atmosphere. It's, it's the atmosphere and the strangeness of it because Carpenter, you know, whatever he was toying with, there's generally a logic to his films. Uh, he, he generally seems to have a pretty good understanding of what's happening and why and... And all of that and with prince of darkness you know like you said he was incredibly frustrated by the studio realm and and i think that that had been a long time coming because i know that the thing was kind of supposed to be his big break into you know bigger and better things and then it ended up being a box office bomb and so he kind (laughs) of i i know that was very painful for him and and i think that he never quite got past that 
uh, during that period. And you know, when you when you stack up these other failures, such as Big Trouble in Little China, I think that he just got really frustrated with the studio realm and wanted to go back to his roots and do something, do something a little bit more fun that he could play with. And so, the thing that I really love about Prince of Darkness is that, you know, as far as I understand, it was actually inspired by. Uh, by a viewing of Argento's Inferno, hmm. Carpenter, I forget which um, which uh, magazine he had told this to in an interview, but he he basically had seen Inferno and decided, you know, I really want to play with something like that. This this free narrative structure that doesn't really have to make sense, <laughs> mm-hmm. which which was a lot of you know Italian horror at that time. It's <laughs> Right. You, you watch it and there's there's very little logic and it's more just a lot of weirdness and mm-hmm. you know just kind of a, a different realm sort of but anyway Prince of Darkness is kind of his homage to that you know it's not it's not a straight up homage to Italian horror but it's it's his version of it you know it's it's his uh, it's his film where he didn't feel like he had to stick to any sort of narrative logic in fact you know I just um I just revisited the commentary recently with him and P- Peter Jason on the film, which, mm-hmm. by the way, anyone who's a commentary nerd, I highly recommend this commentary because it's basically just Carpenter and Jason making fun of each other the whole time. But <laughs> right. Uh, but but during the commentary, you know, Peter Jason's asking him all kinds of questions of, you know, oh, what does this mean? And when where did that idea come from? And what's this? And uh, the the entire time, Carpenter is just <laughs> he, he flat out says at one point. I have no idea what any of this meant. I just tried the weird shit. <laughs> and, and, you know, and all, all of that just comes through with Prince of Darkness. It's, it's, I really like films like this where it's just completely open to interpretation. You know, there's no, there's no spoon feeding of logic to you. There's no, there's no direct answer as to what's happening. It's, it's the kind of film where, you know, someone like you and I can sit here for hours and just kind of go over, what is this really about? <laughs> You know, right, and and so I just love that. I I and I, I love the spooky atmosphere of it and the the imagery. You know, this is one of Carpenter's few films that uses a lot of uh, religious iconography, and uh, and it's just it's such a spooky movie. You know, I I don't know a better way to put it than that. It's just such a spooky, weird movie, and in that sense, it just stands out from anything else he's ever done. Absolutely, and for all of those fantastic reasons you just gave. I think that's why this did not click with me the first time I watched it. Cause oh, yeah. I was very spoiled in the fact that I I believe, so I, the first Carpenter film I saw was Halloween. And then I think the following one was The Thing. And so I had this very kind of- I mean, you're spoiled at that point. <laughs> yeah, I'm spoiled at that point, right? And not to say that I'm comparing Prince of Darkness to those films, but it's more about this idea that I kind of had a very straightforward view of what Carpenter films entailed. And so to not have any recurring kind of like big monster moments for much of this film, Prince of Darkness, I remember walking away and feeling kind of disappointed the first time I watched it, right? It's kind of like, hey, this is very, very different from what I expect from this director whose films I love so much. And so it wasn't until this recent rewatch where the film really stands out as a kind of just a strong example of his sort of like versatile toolbox of tension, right? Because for a majority of that movie, it's very much atmosphere that's built on just kind of capturing surroundings where strange events are happening and yet they're not so overtly supernatural up to a certain point that 
anybody should has a concrete reason to get up and leave and just kind of like run away screaming into the night, right? Until obviously the cylinder opens up and things start coming out. But I mean, earlier I mentioned Prince of Darkness is the second entry in the Apocalypse trilogy, which is sandwiched between 1982's The Thing and 1994's In the Mouth of Madness. Um, And the thing that connects all three of these films, of course, is their kind of apocalyptic narrative stakes, right? The end of the world is going to come about if this evil is not defeated or contained. Um, But again, as we've been saying, Prince of Darkness is so stylistically different, I find, from those two films. Um, What about this film do you think, compared to those two, stylistically is kind of just leaps and bounds different. So it's different between them. Um, First of all, I think in comparison to The Thing, it's a much different kind of story, you know? I mean, it's still this contained film where where you have people turning into the things, you know? So it's, and all three of them are similar in that sense. And they're, you know, now, now that I'm even just thinking about it, there are quite a few similarities between the three, but in terms of stylistic differences, I mean, again, it just goes back to the the strangeness of it, you know, and in comparison to the thing, because in the mouth of madness is also very kooky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's a tough question, actually, because I, I do think that it's very similar to in the mouth of madness. Um, but when you look at the thing again, it's, you know, it's kind of like this slower burn in a sense. I mean, the thing the thing really gets going really quick because, <laughs> uh, yep. you know, you have that kind of strange opening and then all of a sudden you've got dogs transforming into monsters <laughs> and flamethrowers and <laughs> everyone's yep. losing their damn mind, you know. And like you said, Prince of Darkness really takes a long time to kind of get going in a sense because, again, I feel like Carpenter is just in this sandbox of just seeing what he can throw at the screen and and what will allow uh without questioning too much you know because mm-hmm. through the whole first half of the movie i mean you're getting eclipses and worms on the window and oh there's this guy with cockroaches all around his feet or beetles or whatever and and then oh we got alice cooper hanging out in the alleyway just staring at the building for like 15 hours straight you know uh so it's Prince of Darkness is, in a sense, let, let me put it this way. I feel like Prince of Darkness is this, is reflective of an apocalypse itself in the sense that, you know, when you think the apocalypse, you think brimstone and fire raining from the skies and, you know, Satan on a skeleton horse riding towards, I, I don't know, you whatever your idea of the apocalypse is, it's big, right? Um, and with Prince of Darkness, the way the way an apocalypse would really happen is, you know, it's 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 slow. It starts small. It's, it's gradual. It's gradual, you know. And in Prince of Darkness, everything is starts small, you know. And mm-hmm. and really, even even the climax isn't necessarily a big bane, right? Mm-hmm. It's and so I feel like in that sense, Prince of Darkness, even though it's about the apocalypse, it's more about the the beginning of the apocalypse in a sense, and. It, Man, I'm not answering this question right. <laughs> no, you no, I think I think that's very true in that it is a stylistically different and it's it takes its time, right? In building up to that in a way that feels much more gradual. It feels slow. It's 
It's all about, it's not about overt force. It's not about a mutant dog that's going to start turning into things and and mutating. And we're not going to see a guy come crashing through a window with an axe asking about Sutter Kane and all this stuff. Exactly. It's very gradual. The threat comes from inside. It's all about influence rather than kind of this overt force, which I had such a great appreciation for because that is what stands out to me amongst those other films. They're all isolated to a certain extent. They're all about the end of the world. And yet... It's not, the stakes are not in your face from the opening 15 minutes or so, right? I mean, the this movie has, I think it's like a 12-minute intro almost of credits, and it's not this explosive opening. It's not the shootout uh, of Assault on Precinct 13. It's not the Scandinavian shootout of the thing. It's a college campus being cut between shots of the priest being discovered dead, and then Donald Pleasance is learning about the uh, the cylinder and whatnot. Well, and this is a good point too. Is you know take uh, take the thing for example. You mentioned you mentioned stakes, and even though on the surface level the stakes are similar in the thing in Prince of Darkness, in the sense that we're dealing with a small isolated group that's slowly being taken over one by one. In the thing, there's a very real sense of uh, pretty pretty early on. I would say by mid film that we cannot let this thing escape or it will mm-hmm. be the end of the world. You know, like you have the doctor going through the whole simulation of it would take just a matter of weeks or days uh, until the entire world is just demolished by the thing, right? And in the Mouth of Madness, I mean, we're, we're we, in the Mouth of Madness, you begin at the brink of the end of the world because everyone's already losing their mind, right? Mm-hmm. And Prince of Darkness is, so Prince of Darkness is very different in that sense because we don't really understand what the consequence of Prince of Darkness is, uh, at least not until the very end, maybe. And so there, there isn't really that sense throughout that the world is about to end. Instead, it's like, uh, it actually makes me think of a line from In the Mouth of Madness where I, I want to say it's Sam Neill in the beginning who says, um, every species can sense its own demise. And Prince of Darkness kind of feels like the film leading up to that line because prince of darkness everything is so subtle it's like a, it's like a gut feeling you know the the worms on the window the eclipse all of that it's this it's this gut feeling of something's coming but we don't know what right. and we don't know and because we don't know what we don't know how to fight it and we don't know what to do about it and now for a brief intermission If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. And it definitely makes all the characters have a lot more doubt, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, in The Thing and in The Mouth of Madness, the characters start to question things. They start to question whether this is actually happening or not to a certain degree. But I feel like there's a lot more chaos in Prince of Darkness amongst the core cast themselves, right? People are doubting up until the the moment where they look up and they see the green goo on the ceiling and then it's being sprayed down their throats um, to a degree that I don't think um, that type of chaos kind of ensues amongst the characters in those other two films. But in going back to the isolation that you mentioned, I noticed on a rewatch also just, this is very much a urban isolated movie that feels very real in a sense that the other two don't for me and I find that like the thing it's in the middle of Antarctica that might as well be another planet 
compared to where we're at. In the Mouth of Madness, it's kind of this sleepy little town that is engulfed in this Cthulhu magic. And yet, mm -hmm. in this bustling metropolis, nobody in the outside world realizes what's happening. They don't realize the stakes of what's happening. And I love that there's so many shots that go from what's happening at the end of the film where we have these basically demon-possessed zombies walking around and trying to influence their will and kill people furthermore. And we get these cuts of the street and there's either just people walking or there's just cars driving by. There's no indication that anybody outside of this building understands what's happening. And for that to be set in a, a very grounded uh, location, like to me, that kind of just further speaks to how different this film is. This film feels like the stakes are higher somehow than the other two films for me. Oh, that's actually a great observation. Um, because you're right, you know, you do look at the thing in the mouth of madness and there's a, there's a disconnected reality for the general observer, right? For like you're saying for you and I, we, I've never lived in Antarctica. I've never seen <laughs> space for, you know, two years of my life. I don't have that experience. And, and in the mouth of madness, I mean, the whole, the whole small town thing, even if you've lived in a small town, you've never lived in a small town like that. Right. It, it feels right. very different. And, and you're right. Prince of darkness, just, it feels like it's set in our reality. And I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles and I recognize, you know, some of the areas where it's at. And I love that you point out that there are just people walking by on the street that don't realize, you know, that that though they don't realize those homeless people outside the church are possessed. They don't realize what's going on in the basement of the church. And and there is something really kind of brilliant about that. You know, I just kind of off topic. I just recently um, revisited the Bloomhouse film Dark Skies about the the aliens that are tormenting a family, mm -hmm. right? It, it's an okay film, but there one thing that really stands out to me in that is there's a line toward uh, towards the end where the the main characters go to this guy who's supposed to know everything about what's going on with the aliens, and he says something like, uh, "The war's already over. It happened. The invasion <laughs> already happened. We lost, and they're here with us." You know, mm -hmm. and there's something so much more terrifying about that idea that all of this horror is just going on underneath our noses. You know, like like I could go walk by that church and meanwhile this anti-god is, <laughs> you know, taking over everybody and turning them into burnt corpses and the devil's about to come here and just, you know, destroy us all. And, right. and we wouldn't know, you know, because mm -hmm. to us it just looks like your typical little rundown church on the outside, you know? So there, there really is something that's, frightening about this idea of evil not attacking us from the outside but coming up from within and i think that also victor wong i believe even has a line in the film where he talks about the idea that somebody's trying to call out to people on the street oh we need help we need help and he goes no one out there can help us mm. and that kind of bleeds into this idea that um the film's kind of like central theme essentially is crossing science and faith in a way that I don't remember many of Carpenter's films kind of dealing explicitly in the two. It's either one or the other, right? It's either the science element of like in the thing, or there's a faith element in, um, I believe village of the damned, but, mm. um, in terms of kind of just crossing those two realms and making it interwoven into a way that makes for a really, again, unique story that kind of begins to dabble in elements that he doesn't necessarily always mix which i mean quantum mechanics comes into play in the film and yet 
it's never presented like very over, it's not overburdening, right? It's kind of like the bare bones in a way that it's never alienating. Mm. And yet it's very accessible, I feel like to everybody. And then he has such a great like horror vocabulary at this point in his career, whether audiences at the time were acknowledging it or not, that again, it's very easy for him to blend these two polar opposite topics in a way that makes for a horror film that feels very strange and different, like you said, and yet he's almost kind of just expanding on his storytelling um, abilities. You know, it's uh, it, it's one of the, so so first of all, I, I love like what you just said. I, 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 it's one thing I really appreciate about this film as well is that combination of science and just like weirdo Italian horror, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's one thing that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. It, I feel like it gets lost that Carpenter is very into science. You know, I feel like maybe mm -hmm. there's uh, a lot of people that aren't quite as familiar with that fact about him, but he is, he's very into science. And uh, actually, I think right before, I think right before reading this film, he had finished reading all about this, um, what's it called? Quantum uncertainty theory. Mm -hmm. And, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't know shit about quantum physics, so I'm not going to sit here and try to explain what that is. But <laughs> uh, but he had just finished reading about that, and something that I think gets lost in this film, which is unfortunate, is that uh, a lot of people do assume that it's about the devil. And even though that's you know it's a fine assumption, it's it's not wrong necessarily to consider that because again, you know, there's no logic in this movie. It's very much up to interpretation. But, you know, Carpenter himself was sort of thinking of it as an anti-God, which I think you had mentioned uh, earlier mm -hmm. describing the plot. Is that is that, that's what it is. It's an anti-God, it's an anti-force. So it's not necessarily the devil and the antichrist, it's this anti-force, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of his explanation for how, they're, how all this weird shit's going on, like the 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 earthworms on the windows and everything you know it's like this weird quantum displacement sort of thing going on again i'm not going to try to explain it. i'm not a scientist but. i agree though because i think that his ability to do that again i mean you even get like the supernova that's on the tv um when the main character is like playing cards which is his uh his one of his defining traits but i mean overall yeah his ability to blend those different things together and it really does, it does the film a disservice when people talk about it and it's this like oversimplification of it being about just the devil and and demons and all these things. Whereas it's going somewhere much deeper than that. But again, like you said, it comes back to this idea that the film has a lot more interpretations than I think, I guess if people aren't as familiar with Carpenter's work and they're not as in-depth into kind of just like breaking down the films in a certain way like we are, I suppose they can have that oversimplification, but it lends to this film having multiple layers that I don't necessarily think the other two films in the uh, Apocalypse trilogy have necessarily. Those are much more straightforward films, and that's not saying that those films don't have a lot of different elements going into them, but it's just those films are much more kind of linear in terms of what they're setting out to do, whereas I think Prince of Darkness, there's a lot more interpretations, and there's just a lot more elements in it that a viewer can pick up on and kind of again, interpret differently. For sure. You know, there are a few layers to it and it's, and it's why it's, uh, I mean, I would never say it's not acceptable to have a certain opinion on a film, but it's why it's acceptable to have the opinion that, um, that it is Satan in the antichrist, you know, which, which by the way, just something I found interesting that I'd never actually thought of is supposedly the green goo 
is the anti-god sun and not the anti-god mm-hmm. itself, which right. fact, but um but what is interesting here is that, you know, Carpenter has this idea of this anti-god, this anti-force, but even the characters in the film most of them seem to understand it as the devil and it's you know you see it in the translated text as well that even the translated text is talking about this prince of darkness satan the devil and to me it's kind of like it's it's a it's a small commentary on this idea of how human beings put labels on things that we don't understand and you know so so you can imagine that if this this old order, I, I forget what they're called, the the order of sleep. You can imagine that if they came across whatever this is, uh, they probably would have thought it was the devil because that's that's our interpretation of evil, right? Well, it must be the devil. It must be Satan. It must be whatever your religion's opposite to good is. That's what this is. And uh, it, it turns out it goes much deeper than that and is involved with physics and atoms and <laughs> you know, the 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 scientific forces of the world and so uh you know so for a casual observer it makes sense that you would say that's the devil because i think evil is related to satan um whereas in this case it's really just saying no it's just that every object has or every force has an opposite and in this case there's good so to speak and evil which is this anti-god in you saying that it made me start to think the irony of the fact that all of the people that brought to the church essentially they're all there because they're all brilliant the only really overtly religious figure in the film is donald pleasance as the priest right and everybody else there is our people of science essentially and yet they kind of jump to that oversimplification as soon as they start to see more supernatural things where oh it's the devil, it's demons and all of these things. And I think that part of that it might be Carpenter, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but it seems to me that it's Carpenter almost commenting on hysteria and just the human reliance or human um, shortcomings of just fear and how these kids that are there, these college students, they're all supposed to be these brilliant people. And yet, as soon as things become more overtly terrifying while they're there, they kind of throw all of that out the window. All the reasons that they're there get thrown out the window and they start succumbing to fear and kind of this oversimplification of what's happening. They, they shrink right back to our most primal instincts, right? Uh, you know, I, for example, you know, you, you go outside and it's dark out you hear a strange noise. You don't sit there and think to yourself, well, scientifically, you know, it's most likely <laughs> an, an owl or, you know, what mm-hmm. you, you don't, you don't go through that thought process. You think the worst, you know, you think, right whatever you're most afraid of, that's what's in the dark. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so that's a very primal thing that humans do. So no, you're, you're exactly right. These are all brilliant characters, except for the priest. And yet their first instinct is to jump to the worst thing that they can think of. Um, Cause yeah, when you're posed with fear like that, that's, that's what we do. You know, you don't think logically. <laughs> and so earlier we were talking about how Carpenter is able to kind of take his stylistic elements and he's able to imprint them onto everything he does but in a way that matches specifically whatever project it is right so it never really feels like oh he's doing a halloween thing here he's doing an assault on precinct thing precinct 13 element here it's more just his style that's able to bleed into the types of stories that he's trying to tell so that way it feels very organic and i mean this film again i think what separates it from a lot of his other films is that it is so strange 
And he's able to incorporate so many different types of scares into this. Whereas a film like Halloween, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's a slasher. It's a guy in a mask with a knife. In yeah. The Mouth of Madness, there's these Cthulhu monsters that take different shapes and forms, but essentially it's the boogeyman in real life or the personification of the boogeyman, these monsters. But in this film, he's able to really, again, he's able to weaponize kind of the dread throughout the entire film and that pacing and that buildup. That way, when he has a moment that feels like it reverts to, I don't know if, I don't want to simplify it to a slasher kill, but like with Alice Cooper and the bike, right? That's kind of like a very, he skewers that one guy who, for some reason, doesn't run away when he sees a pigeon crucified. But um, (laughs) I mean, like that's a very kind of straightforward horror moment. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but that's a very straightforward horror moment that I think hits a lot harder than I was expecting at least just because of the buildup of the film. There's so much anticipation that something horrifying is building. Something is going to happen. We don't know what it is. And kind of in that unknowingness, that kill is a lot more powerful than I initially thought when I watched the movie. When I first saw the movie, I was like, okay, that's like a slasher-esque kill that we've probably seen implements implemented in multiple films. But in this movie, to have such a visceral act of violence that by some ex- some extent it's not that far removed from what we're used to mm. I feel like there's so much smart build up to it that it is one of the most memorable moments in the entire film oh for sure and uh, first off fun fact about that is for anyone who's ever wondered what the hell is Alice Cooper doing in this movie it's because <laughs> of that gag so don't yeah. know Alice I guess I've never seen it myself but Alice had a, a thing that he did on stage with this bike gag so like that bike was actually his own prop <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and he wanted to be in the movie and Carpenter said well if we can use that kill in the movie then you can be in it <laughs> that's what Cooper's doing there but but no I think I see what you're saying like it the film is set up in such a way that you don't expect that sort of visceral kill right it mm-hmm. you, you maybe expect something more more supernatural or less violent or less graphic and so it does it does really hit you in that way and even just being a Carpenter fan, uh, I have to imagine this was a pretty off-putting experience for a lot of his uh, for a lot of his fans at the time, especially because other than the thing, you know, Carpenter hadn't worked with Carpenter's not really a gore guy, you know, right. I, like not a lot of people know that he's not really one who wants a lot of blood in his movies, like. Mm-hmm. He'll use it if if it's uh, if it's practical and if it makes sense for the story. But I mean, you know, just look at Halloween for example. Barely a drop of blood in that film, you know. Right. And it, so, Prince of Darkness. I mean, this is one of his more graphic, violent, kind of bloody movies. And I feel like that that in combination with the the strange spookiness of it, you know, it it really is just a it's a hard it's a hard viewing for for first timers like. You know, you had mentioned uh, you weren't much of a fan your first time. I wasn't either, to be honest. Uh, mm-hmm. My first time seeing it was when I uh, was in my teens at some point. And, you know, I, I remember thinking kind of similar to what you did of just like, oh, what the hell was that? You know, right. <laughs> I, this isn't the thing or Halloween, you know, what the hell's going on here? And uh, but yeah, once you step back and really appreciate it, it, it does. I, I, I love that. I love that aspect of it that it just it does have different ways that it gets you and mm-hmm. you know in that sense again it also 
it does go back to Italian horror in a sense and, and kind of how a lot of those films are is, you know, I think of, um, oh, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I think of like Suspiria, which is very, you know, supernatural and spooky and weird, right? Uh, but then it also alternates with these these random moments of just extreme violence that just come out of nowhere yeah. that you don't expect. And actually, I think there's a scene uh, that takes place in an open space in Suspiria where someone kind of is running out and stabbing someone or whatever. And that's, that's very similar to what happens here in Prince of Darkness with the guy who's just standing out there and then the homeless woman comes out and you don't really see her at all. You just see the hand and, and the blade. No, yeah. I think that the way that he's able to catch the viewer off guard with, I would say they're definitely the more gratuitous kills of his career. Mm -hmm. They're gratuitous and yet they're sparingly used, Like right? Again, th I think the word restraint is one that is apt for this film in that Absolutely. he has so much restraint, which obviously feeds into the slow buildup of the entire film, but also the idea that not every single kill is gratuitous in that way. And we have those two, those are probably the two biggest moments of like gratuitous violence where you've got blood spurting out of this guy. One guy gets stabbed like 30 times by a homeless woman with a pair of scissors. Um, but then he reverts back to types of scares that are very indicative of Carpenter, right? Then we have that guy's body gets filled with the beetles and he's got this creepy uh, altered voice where he's saying, I have a message for you. You're not going to like it. Pray for death. Pray for death. These very kind of, they're indicative of Carpenter's style and he's not being, those are, that's an example of like, it's not gratuitous because you see this guy's got beetles on, but it's still unnerving. And again, like you said, we don't see all of him. We see he just looks like a guy in a suit at first and he's engulfed in the shadows. And then when you move up, the camera pans into him. Then you see, oh, he's covered in beetles. And then obviously his limbs start to fall off, which is a little more gratuitous than, a more. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, just a little more. But on a rewatch for me, though, one thing that was ultimately more disturbing that I didn't pick up on initially because I... I don't know, maybe it was too jarring of an experience to my previous experience with Carpenter films, but the reality is of this film is that the homeless people aren't necessarily the ones that do much of the killing, right? They kill two people, I believe, in the entire film, and the rest of the people that get killed, they get killed either by one another, where two of the women get thrown out of a window, mm. or at the end of the film and stopping eventually the anti-god trying to bring father back through the mirror, the mirror gets smashed and then everybody else dies. It's more kind of just, hey, we have to do these things and they're probably going to be, the results of our actions are going to be us essentially killing one another, which I mean, that's well, <laughs> far more, yeah, I mean, it's far more disturbing to me. Well, look, so at the core of all three of these films, what are they really about? They're about mm -hmm. us turning on each other, you know, right. and I, uh, <laughs> maybe your audience is lucky we didn't talk about in the mouth of madness because i probably would have rambled about that for like five hours straight but <laughs> um but you know in the mouth of madness in this trilogy is one that i think about often these days because there's a line from sam neill that or no 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 not sam neill um the opposite i forget the actress's name but uh there's a there's a line from her when they're driving in the car that seriously spooks me to this day which is uh something along the lines of what what you consider sane is because everyone else shares your opinion of what reality is 
right? Mm -hmm. But but the second that the majority considers reality to be something different than what you consider reality to be, now you're the crazy one. And <laughs> so so I, I put that in context a lot with our current our current politics, which isn't even just you know limited to just America. It's you're seeing it around the world, where there's mm -hmm. one group of people who don't believe in science <laughs> uh, and who basically live in a different reality. And there's other people like you and I who believe in science and believe in reality, right? And <laughs> the scary thing sometimes is, is if one group becomes the predominant group, if that anti-science group became the predominant one, we would be the crazy ones. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, so back to Prince of Darkness, um, that that is at the heart of all three of these apocalypse films is this idea of the apocalypse won't it won't necessarily come from an outside force it it will most likely come from us tearing each other apart because even though there are these sinister forces in each of these three stories you know at, at the core of them they're all about us turning on each other so, so, you know, I, I think that's kind of the commentary with all of them is that that's when things begin to fall apart is when you stop working together and start seeing each other as the other, right? Mm -hmm. um, so no, that is, that is the frightening thing about Prince of Darkness, like you said, is the evil itself eliminates very few people in the film. It's mostly, as you mentioned, us taking out each other. <laughs> yeah. And again, to come back to kind of what I mentioned earlier in that, it's not about overt force, right? In the thing, the monster is kind of ripping you apart. Obviously, that's much more in your face throughout the entire film, and it's pushing people to their breaking point much faster. But, I mean, again, to come back to the film being so feeling so restrained in that, especially the Alice Cooper-led homeless people, they never they barricade the doors, but it's never them breaking through and they're at the throats of all of these people. It's about isolating people and then making them deal with an internal threat that, I mean, like you said, it's that ultimately is what is so terrifying about this film because, I mean, had this movie just been possessed demons and all of that kind of thing that we would probably be pretty used to, I mean, for, for me personally, like that's not the types of movies that I'm necessarily super interested in. And this would have been, this would have felt very foreign to those two other uh, in, entries in the Apocalypse trilogy in that at the core of it is about people tearing one another down um, yeah. in a way that, again, it's it feels so restrained because I think it's what the last 35 minutes of the movie where things are inarguably overtly supernatural. <laughs> well, it's like uh, it's like a cancer in a sense, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Prince of Darkness, you're absolutely right. That, and this is what's very different about uh, this film compared to other Siege films is that the, 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 the possessed homeless, they're not trying to get in. Now, they they essentially barricade the building and contain these people. Uh, but it's the people that are trying to get out. <laughs> right. You know, they're not trying to keep these others from coming in. They're trying to get out. And, you know, so the, the evil, it, it is like a cancer that just kind of works its way through this contained space and through these people where it's just slowly uh, disintegrating and, you know, just taking away everything and, and, and eliminating them. And so... Um, and, you know, and, and I, I always take that kind of idea back to, again, humanity's hatred or whatever you want to call it for differences in, in one another, right? It, 
that in itself is like a cancer that eats you up and eats you up until it finally just takes over and you're no longer like who you were right mm-hmm. um so that that's what this film reminds me a lot of too is just this idea of you know just this this thing that's just slowly working its way through you like this this dislike or this hatred that turns you against others um I don't know, which, which is probably a reading that maybe doesn't apply to this movie, but... <laughs> I would agree with that, though, and I think that the way Carpenter handles it is so smart, right? We don't get a whole lot of scenes of characters bickering about their beliefs and all these things, because mm. that would be a bit on the nose and kind of, again, exactly what you would expect, right? The one man of faith is shouting, I'm the, I'm the only one that knows what's happening, and then the other people kind of spend the rest of the film demonizing him, right? Again, mm. I think Carpenter's ability to take these very controversial... Uh, sides essentially and he's able to meld it into a story that's approachable to essentially either side I find is very rare usually filmmakers you know that's it's pretty over over the top for one side or the other in a lot of ways or at least the portrayal of the sides is always extrapolated to a almost unrealistic degree right (laughs) yeah but I think that again that's something that I think stands out more to me than necessarily I mean I don't know your thoughts on this but like the performances in this movie don't necessarily do a lot for me in terms of, I know it's awesome that Carpenter gets to have these collaborators that he's frequently worked with. And yet mm. I don't know that this film stands out to me as like, Oh, that's a really great Donald Pleasance performance, or that's a very uh, memorable Victor Wong performance. I think it's more about the way that he makes this film. And it's almost just more about the themes and the story rather than necessarily the individuals themselves. How do you feel about that? No, I agree. It's, uh, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not Pleasance's best performance in a Carpenter movie. This is not Juan's best performance in a Carpenter movie. And, and, and another way that it is a little bit different is, you know, this is also, um, he does a few of these movies. The Fog is kind of similar in this sense, but but it's it's an ensemble film from Carpenter. You know, so I, I think that has something to do with why you're not particularly attached to all these characters is that it it is more of an ensemble movie and we're not really focused on one character's plot or the other i mean the deepest that we get is i want to say the characters names are are brian and Catherine, played by uh, jameson parker and lisa blunt but the the deepest you really get with who these people are is is them having a little spark right (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah uh and and other than that we don't get to know too much about them and so it's really it really just begins to boil down to do they believe in the supernatural or not um so i'm sorry go ahead i was just gonna say it probably helps in that regard that those elements are so strong in that we avoid kind of like what i was saying a few minutes ago in that we avoid those big blow-ups where somebody is is 150% invested in their faith and or vice versa with uh, with their science background and they mm. just ends up being this devolving into a screaming match about who's right, who's wrong. Mm. So I suppose in that regard, that's actually a strength, right? If we had that Kurt Russell from The Thing character, then it would be such a defining voice that you would be hard-pressed not to kind of move into the direction of what I was talking about a minute ago. Well, look, and in this film, you don't have to take sides. Like, like mm-hmm. you were saying before, that I, I think that is the strength of it because it allows you to, it allows you to put yourself deeper into the shoes of everyone. You know, because characters like this that that don't have a strong voice, they they allow you to get deeper into that character. I think because you're able mm-hmm. to put more of yourself into that character. Um, you know, because there's nothing, 
because there's nothing about them that's going to make you stop and go oh well i'm i'm not like that so maybe this person isn't like me you know they're 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 such kind of blank slates that you can <laughs> you can put yourself in them and and yeah i agree if this was if this was like the mist that has you know this religious zealot and 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 uh and the opposite of that trapped together screaming over each other of who's right and who's wrong like is it the apocalypse or is it a scientific disaster like you know if you had those voices screaming over each other the entire time i think that takes away from honestly the weirdness of it because because uh, a film like prince of darkness works best when you don't have an explanation you know when when it is all completely open to interpretation and and i appreciate someone like carpenter flat out admitting i don't know what the hell's going on in this movie <laughs> <laughs> You know, because because that's the point. He he wants us to to look at it and and try to understand it for ourselves. He doesn't have a agenda with this film, so to say. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I always think filmmaking's better that way. I think when you go into it with a strong agenda, uh, sometimes that can work, but oftentimes it it's going to put off a certain set of viewers. You know, and I'd much rather go into a film and try to interpret what I think the director's saying as opposed to having them tell me what they're saying. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to kind of describe this film in that sense. And I think that's why it does feel so foreign to the rest of his works. Right. And it is a film that I for sure would not recommend first, like or even within the first three Carpenter films. You know what I mean? Like this would this would be in my top five. But now because of my kind of newfound appreciation for it. And yet this is very much not a beginner Carpenter film, but no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's part of what, I mean, that's part of what I love about having guests on. They pick films that it forces me to go back and rewatch something that maybe I necessarily wouldn't based off of an initial reaction and in getting to re-experience it in new context based on what I've been watching in the time since that and kind of just more understanding about what the director is actually going for. It just gives me a whole new appreciation for it. Well, you know, I mean, this is a, uh this is a really good advice I think I'd give to any of your listeners, which is that never ever let your, first of all, never let your first impression of a film define what you think of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, you and I as as critics, like sometimes we only get the time to watch. <laughs> right. Watch it the one time and, and that's our take on it. But in a, in a general sense, you know, as a fan, I always recommend, like, say you hated a movie you saw 10 years ago, go back and rewatch it. You know, go mm-hmm. back and rewatch these things because the the older we get and the different life experiences we have, the the different approach you're going to take to each film. You know, so like uh, for again, for example, I was talking about In the Mouth of Madness. I I watched that movie when when I was like 12. You know, and and the themes of of madness and the whole uh, the whole thing that I just described to you about you know different realities and and who who decides reality i i think about that completely differently now as an adult (laughs) than i than i did as a kid and it makes me appreciate the film more you know Mm -hmm. and other films i've discovered in that sense are like uh (laughs) people are gonna hate you for this but like jason goes to hell i used to hate Mm -hmm. jason goes to hell and now i actually kind of dig it because i'm like all right, it's not really a Friday the 13th film per se, but it's actually a really fun body hopping movie, you know? So, uh, so yeah, you just, you take these things differently uh, through life, the older you get and, and the more you're able to appreciate what they're trying to do. Um, so no, yeah, I'll always go back and, and revisit stuff, but 
like you said, if you're introducing somebody to Carpenter, Prince of Darkness is not the way to start. <laughs> right. I guess in sort of wrapping up then, that leads right into my final question for you, which is if you had to make a double bill essentially of two Carpenter features for someone that's not familiar with his work, what would they be? I mean, if you're not familiar with his work, I, I'd say, I would say go with The Fog and uh, I'd say go with The Fog and maybe this is a random one, but maybe Big Trouble in Little China. And the reason I say that, <laughs> the reason I say that is I, I think you get the best of both Carpenters with that double feature, you know, because The Fog is, The Fog I think is Carpenter's purest uh, horror film in the sense that you know in the sense that first of all it was his passion project like he he only agreed to do Halloween 2 so he could do that movie and, right. and Halloween was a project that he was signed on to do you know that wasn't originally his thing that he wanted to do so I think The Fog is like this pure horror film because it you know in a lot of senses it feels like that ghost story by the seaside right around the fire and and the kids sitting around and getting spooked you know like that that is the fog to me and like we've been talking about with his his uh stylistic sensibilities i mean the fog is pure carpenter atmosphere from from beginning yeah. to end uh it it never lets up and so i would say that's a great one to kind of introduce fans to what uh carpenter's horror vibe is like and then big trouble in little china i think is the opposite where the other side of carpenter is that you know, unlike, I think unlike a lot of other filmmakers, like Carpenter does have films where he's trying to say something, you know, like They Live is obviously very anti-government and all that. Um, but for the most part, the thing about Carpenter that I, that I really love and that endears me to him is that, you know, Carpenter's not really always out there to to sell you on something. Carpenter really just makes movies to have fun. Mm -hmm. and, and Big Trouble in Little China is the best example of that, I think, where... It's just Carpenter going as big and as wild and as fun as possible. And he's not hes not sitting there trying to make you think deeper about the Vietnam War or, <laughs> or, you know, about whether you can trust your neighbor or not. He's really just trying to entertain you with that film. So, so even though those two films are complete opposites, I think that that's, those two will give you a really good sense of who Carpenter is as a director. Those are two fantastic choices. I mean, my first film is always rotating because it's one that I kind of want to pick to be the pure distillation of his mas his of why he's a master of horror. And then always my second feature is Big Trouble in Little China, just because oh. <laughs> it shows that he's versatile in something other than horror, right? I think, mm -hmm. not to get too much into like comparing directors, but I mean, I, I believe you mentioned Wes Craven at the beginning of the show and kind of talking about how some of his films, I'm, I'm not, I think he has a much larger filmography and he doesn't always hit the same marks that I would like him to in some of his films. But mm. I mean, with Carpenter, he's able to go from something like the fog to making a film that is indicative of his taste. And he's into, he's into comedies, he's into action movies, he's into martial arts movies. And he's able to kind of take those three things and put them in a package that is distinctly different from the fog uh, genre wise. And yet it feels like a John Carpenter movie still, right? He still has his mark all over that movie in ways that are obviously different to pertain to the genre, and yet it feels like something John Carpenter made. Well, you know, to me, just focusing on the horror genre specifically, to me, there are two kinds of horror filmmakers. There's a filmmaker who makes horror films, and then there's the horror fan 
that makes horror films. And, mm-hmm. and and what I mean by that is, you know, Carpenter, uh, I think has, I think has admitted, or, or at least he felt this way back around Halloween. Like he, he wasn't a huge horror fan. You know, that wasn't mm-hmm. like his goal to be a horror master, right? He just wanted to make movies, right. and you know, I mean, that's why he didn't start with horror. He started with Dark Star, which is like this weird sci-fi comedy, and then Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and they they showed those sensibilities that he would later put in the horror. Um, but but he was just a filmmaker who loves story. You know, he just mm-hmm. loves movies and that comes through in all of his work because he takes his style and he applies it to each and every genre. And what other filmmakers tend to do is, you know, as as horror fans, like if that's your main thing and you're not necessarily a a lover of all stories but you just love horror and that's what you want to do you know you're kind of you're feeling more inspired by previous horror films mm-hmm. and so and so i feel like you're you're trying to capture that magic rather than taking the story and putting your own spin on it i i don't know if that makes sense but i just think that, that makes perfect sense yeah i just think the carpenter you know why he's able to do that is because he he's a carnosaur of all of this stuff no, instead of just focusing on one genre, he 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 loves it all. So he's able to take all those story elements and combine them and 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 you know make them work, but also within the realm of his own style. So, yeah, I think that that's a perfect way to put it because you are almost handicapping yourself in the ways that you're able to tell a story. If you're like, oh, I'm just a horror, a diehard horror fan, and that's I, all I see and speak and breathe is horror, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make a film like that. But like you said. More often than not, your your entire pool of reference is going to be other horror films that came before it, and so that's why I would I would venture that a lot of people might say like from looking in the outside of the horror genre, they're like, oh well, that's just derivative of this and this and this and this and this. Whereas I don't feel you can do that with many Carpenter films. Again, just based on his overall love of story and filmmaking, he's able to be more free in that regard. Oh yeah, not at all. And and even even just with his work, you know, actually something that was interesting in the commentary that um that i hadn't really thought of with him is that uh he he mentioned star wars during the commentary uh i i think when they're talking about the music and how the the theme to star wars kind of changed the the musical landscape of film because it became this sort of blockbuster type score where like you know movies afterwards they all wanted to be big you know they want to they want to force the emotion on you rather than have you come to the emotion uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, like scores, they typically are influencing how you feel. Right. And if you watch a lot of Carpenter movies, his scores aren't like that. They're, they're not, they're not in your face. They're, they're underneath the picture and they're creating more of a mood that allows you to kind of find where you feel personally. And mm-hmm. anyway, so, you know, Carpenter describes how Star Wars kind of changed the film landscape, uh, into kind of developing into this mindset of making blockbusters and that's what film became and I, I don't think that's too hard to argue now looking at you know what major studios are releasing I mean it's all about the blockbuster you know it's not it's not about taking risks and doing something different for the most part it's how big can you make it and and with Carpenter's movies you know he he always wanted to be trying to do something different it was never it was never about trying to do the the big spectacle it was about just trying to tell a good story and and do something that you hadn't necessarily seen before so so no i absolutely agree with you i I do think that's the strength of carpenter's work is 
you don't really find a lot of derivative material with him because he's always trying to move on to something else, which I think is also why he had no interest in doing Halloween sequels because he didn't want to <laughs> yeah. tell the same story again, right? So, <laughs> right. That attitude of his is very telling in that his, like, he hasn't made a film in a very long time. And yet, Not since it's one of those Ward. things. Yeah, since The Ward, which was what, 2010? Maybe around there. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I know that. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a long time ago, and I think that based on what the last two or three films he made looked like, I think it's it shows his strength as a filmmaker that he realized probably like, hey, maybe it's time for me to take a step back, just because we started to get, I don't know, around that uh, time. I feel like we were seeing a lot of directors getting towards the end of their career, and it was the films they were producing were not necessarily indicative of why we were all going to see their films well, for a I, long time. I, I think he started to find what what unfortunately a lot of filmmakers found was that no matter what your name, no matter who you are, <laughs> uh, the studios did not care. You know, the studios, they wanted whatever was hot. And so you look at you look at Ghosts of Mars, and I mean, that came around right, uh, not not the same year, I don't believe, but that came around you know, right around the time of Pitch Black and Event Horizon and other movies that were kind of exploring space horror, right? And mm-hmm. um, and The Ward, I mean, The Ward feels like every other goddamn supernatural, <laughs> yeah. supernatural film from that time. Uh, you know, and so I, I think I, I think Carpenter made the right decision of I'm going to step back, I'm going to take paychecks for remakes because I don't give a shit, go do whatever you want, just give me money. And, uh, and I think he understood, you know, if I keep making movies... I'm going to keep being told no because the studio wants what it wants. It doesn't really care what I think anymore. Um, and you know, like, I mean, you've seen that with, uh, with Spielberg. I mean, I know Spielberg, Spielberg has trouble getting, getting a movie sold now. Right. Mm-hmm. Fucking Steven Spielberg, you know, but, <laughs> but, but, but the studios don't want Steven Spielberg doing his three hour Abraham Lincoln biopic. Right. They, they want right. big studio, uh, Ready Player Eight movies. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a uh, that's a good place to wrap up our conversation of John Carpenter and uh, the Prince of Darkness. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, man. But uh, before I let you go, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, sure. Uh, you can follow our site where myself and Jay also write at killerhorrorcritic.com. You can also follow us on at Killer from Space, uh, where you can also find the podcast that I do with my wife, where we basically just goof around and talk horror movies and get a little buzzed and <laughs> the and to have husband and wife type arguments over them. Um but uh but yeah that's about it. You know, just, just go ahead and follow killhorrorcrate.com and at killer from space and and follow Jay. Jay's awesome, although I assume you're following him if you're listening to this. Well as always man, it was a pleasure chatting movies with you and uh hopefully I look forward to having you on again in the future. Yeah, no, it was great, man. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. And everyone, go see Prince of Darkness. If you're still listening to this, for God's sakes, go go watch Prince of Darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And listen to the commentary, because it sounds like the commentary has lots of uh, juicy details about the movie. It's it's just so funny. I mean, like I said, it's just Carpenter and Peter Jason just shitting on each other the whole time. (laughs) What's the not to love about that, right? Nope. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.